0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
5: And so these two ideas kind of combined, and I got this idea to do what I called the MIT challenge, where it was uh, quite quite audacious. It was just sort of, I wanted to try to learn MIT's four-year computer science curriculum, but instead of going to MIT and trying to do that, I wanted to use their free materials And I wanted to try to do it in 12 months. And so this was my first big ultra learning project. And um, it was successful. I feel like I was able to not only uh, pass the final exams, but do the programming projects. And I learned basically the content that was in an MIT degree. I mean, there's deviations, of course, and we can get into some of those details if you'd like. But I think just for me, the idea that this was even possible at all, that it was even Uh possible to do something that was even substantially similar to a degree without paying money or even doing it faster was such a such an insight to me that that kind of really you know took me from watching benny lewis and kind of fantasizing about ultra learning to like oh no this is actually something that i'm interested in doing now
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So, as I was saying uh, to you before we hit record, we had you back in the days when we were called Broadcast FM, but it was so damn long ago that you barely remember it, and I barely remember the conversation. Um, but you have a new book out called Ultra Learning, which we're going to talk about in quite a bit of detail. But before we get into all of that, uh, I wanted to start by asking you: What is one of the most important things that one or both of your parents taught you? That have shaped who you've become and what you've done with your life.
5: You know what? That's a, that's a really good question because I remember, I remember this moment when I was, uh, I forget what grade I was in, maybe like two or three. And some of the other kids in the class uh, that I was with, their parents would give them money if they got good grades, like a little, little kind of like gift, I guess, if they got good grades in the class. And you know, as a kid, you don't have you don't have any money. You're sort of like, oh, I, this sounds like pretty good. Like, why why are not? Why am I not getting money for getting good grades? Especially because I often got better grades than the kids who were receiving money. And I remember I told my parents this, and I was sort of like, hey, you know, why don't why don't we get any little like gifts for getting grades? And they said, uh, learning is its own reward. And wow. I think that always stuck with me that they didn't want to reward us for doing something that you know we should like intrinsically and that's always stuck with me. And that was sort of the ending line I put in the acknowledgements of my book. And I think uh, they were both school teachers and they really viewed that, that, you know, to learn things, to understand the world is its own reward. And, and I think that is a perspective that's often lost as we're trying to, you know, grab degrees and get the best grades and, you know, earn the most money.
0: How did your understanding of that idea of learning being its own reward change with age? And it's funny because I literally shared the story of my exact attempt to have that conversation <laughs> with, you had with your parents with my dad yeah. and Indian parents were like, yeah, fuck that. You're not getting anything like go get grades. That's what's expected of you. Yeah. Uh, but I, I wonder yeah. how, you know, like particularly because I mean, it sounds like you were mm-hmm. really young when that was taught to you. And I, I wonder yeah. how your perception of that lesson changed with age. You know, I think also one
5: of the things uh, I can just add to that as well is that my parents had, a, um, they had an interesting way of approaching kind of this sort of idea. So one of them was this sort of learning should be its own reward. But they were whenever I, you know, achieved something or let's say I, you know, I got a good grade on a test, but I didn't study so much. My parents weren't always super congratulatory the way that some parents would be like, oh, great, you're so smart like this. My parents always had kind of a cautionary tone, just sort of like, okay, yeah, but like you're going to have to work on it eventually. And I remember that always sticking with me because, you know, especially now you look at like research on things like fixed and growth mindset and stuff like that, and that my parents really kind of they put the emphasis on, you know, getting the work and, and working hard at it and not so much on what result you achieved. I think if Mm -hmm. I had been a mediocre student, but I had tried really hard, my parents would have been proud of me regardless. And I think that's something that's often missed because a lot of us have, you know, negative feelings about learning because we didn't do that well. And someone kind of scolded us, even though we tried hard. And that was sort of, it hurts, you know, when you you're trying hard at a test and someone says, oh, well, you're no good at this. Right. And then that just immediately kills your enthusiasm. And so I think in some ways, my parents as I got older that was the main thing that I kind of felt is not so much oh that they made me into who I am today and all always, ways but just that they didn't kill my enthusiasm for learning because I think we all are kind of born with this enthusiasm for learning curiosity and it just gets killed out of us as we get older by you mm-hmm. know the school system by people who are dismissive of us who try to label us and put us in little straitjackets of what we can and can't do and so I think I was just lucky that my parents, uh, you know, they, they allowed me to stay enthusiastic for so long.
0: Yeah. So for your parents being educators and mm-hmm. school teachers, I wonder one, what is, uh, your entire, your, your view and particularly in the, in the wake of writing this book and in the yeah. wake of something like the college admissions scandal, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> what is your own view on education? And if I remember correctly, you're yeah. Canadian, right? I am Canadian. Yeah. Okay. So I, I really, I also, am very curious, like what kind of differences you see from Canada and the U S
5: yeah. So Canada is kind of a hybrid system somewhere between Europe and the States. Uh, we do pay for university and for some of the good schools, it can be expensive, although it's not quite as expensive as the States. So there's sort of like a hybrid model. The European model tends to be more meritocrat, uh, sorry, more egalitarian and that, uh, you know, everyone is expected to go to school or, or, or be able to get university and thus it's affordable, but you also don't have the same kind of elite institutions. I mean, when we talk about universities worldwide, we talk about MIT and Harvard and, and Yale and these schools that just sort of produce such high intellectual caliber. So they, they tend to be optimized for somewhat different goals. My own feeling about education is that I think the educational system is, you um, is what it is. And so there are some advantages to it. And there are some things that why you might want to go to school to learn certain things or to get access to certain opportunities. But I think mm-hmm. for me, my a big turning point was kind of after leaving school of just realizing how much skill development, how much knowledge you can get without ever going to school. And I know mm-hmm. that sounds a little trivial. And sometimes people are dismissive of that. And they're kind of like, Oh, yeah, well, degrees are the only thing that matters. And that's really what I want to push back on because I think that this is a world in which being good at things is very important and knowing things is super valuable. And it's the thing that often what employers care about or what we care about in our lives when we're trying to do things. And there's just kind of a laziness there of just sort of saying, well, you know, if you didn't go to school to learn X and it doesn't matter. Um, Sometimes Mm -hmm. that's the case, but often it isn't. And I think I'm trying to really cultivate that kind of self-directed learning in my own life. Yeah. And, and certainly in this book, I, I talk about it a lot. Well, I,
0: I think that, the, you know, it, what's interesting to me is, is that, uh, you know, I, I went to business school and I always say business yeah. school doesn't teach you a damn thing about running a business. <laughs> like, it really no. doesn't. Like, no. I even mean, business yeah, school yeah. teaches you how to be a manager or be an employee. You Good know, little and, middle and manager. Yeah. yeah, it really doesn't. And, you yeah. know, I, I have always said, like, you, if you asked most of my classmates to come and run my business, most of them wouldn't know what to do. They would not no, have a course clue. Not. And I know because I didn't. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it, I think that it, it's, it's a fascinating thing. Like you're right. I think there are exceptions. Like I don't want a self-educated doctor or airline pilot. I'm like, yeah, I hope you learn that from somewhere, not from watching YouTube videos. Although my sister says that she'd, you'd be shocked at how many people actually literally just, you know, do med school lectures on IT. Well, iTunes. I would
5: say, I would say just to kind of push back on that point a little bit, yeah. you want your, you want to know your doctor is qualified. You want to know that yeah. someone has checked them and that they are going to, you know, if you're going to get surgery, you want to know that they have done their homework and pass some tests and this kind of thing. But if you talk, look at actual medical school, I mean, one of the facts when I was looking at research of people who are doing medical school and stuff is that there's almost kind of a status quo, except that like, well, you're going to forget everything that's in your classes and you're going to have to relearn it all right. later anyways.
1: Like how insane
5: is that, you know, that this is, and there's, you know, we could go have a whole podcast about medical school education, but the whole idea that like these residencies where you do 30 hours in a row, there's just so Mm -hmm. many things that are just actually detrimental to learning that are baked into our system. But it, it functions because the system is sort of brutal and it weeds out people who aren't smart or committed enough to knowing medicine, which I think is sometimes unfortunate because you maybe have someone who can't go through you know medical
0: school but they're smart and they make good doctors you know Mm -hmm. well i mean i know this you know because my sister is a doctor and she says you get you know first year residence she said you're basically thrown into the deep end of the pool and she's like and you don't have a clue what you're doing despite four years of med school she (laughs) said it's so nerve-wracking when you get there at first because she's like oh i'm gonna kill somebody i know it (laughs) you know yeah Um, yeah well, so one of the things I, I want to spend a bit more time talking about the education from a systems sure. level before we get yeah, yeah, into, um, you know, the book itself. But so, like looking at this framework of, of ultra learning, what yeah. I thought to myself is like, why is this not the way that we're teaching in schools? Like, mm-hmm. are, are we going to need sort of policy change for teachers to wake up and say, OK, you know what? Because I feel that we yeah. really are dealing with a very outdated system that it not only leaves people in debt, but it doesn't lead mm-hmm. to its intended outcome. The, if the outcome is to go and live a decent life afterwards.
5: So this is a really interesting question and I'll, I'll answer it in a couple ways because I think there's a few reasons that we see the school system as we do and that as an outsider to such a system if you know anything about like the science of learning or cognitive science you will see many deficits ways that well, why don't they do it in the way that works. And I've spent, you know, probably about a decade thinking about this question and so I have kind of come up with a couple answers that I think explains not only why the system is the way it is and also why it's been somewhat difficult to change it over time and also why, as a learner, someone who's interested in learning and improving yourself, that you can do things that maybe are hard to do um, at a systems level, just making it so that, well, the the right, you know, ultra-learning is just the new system. And so the first thing I would say is that schools... And institutions in general have to kind of teach in a mass market format. So you have to teach with a classroom size where, I mean, if you're one on one, that's just too expensive. So you have these big classrooms full of 300 people. And so a lot of the weaknesses, perhaps, of traditional education are because of this. How do you get a group of 300 people that have different, slightly different backgrounds, slightly? Different interests, different directions in life in the future, different abilities, different weaknesses. You put them all in the same environment, you teach them the same things through a lecture and then expect them to all get a good result. So sometimes there's a standardization there. So I think Mm -hmm. in some ways, by personalizing, by you know, going more one-on-one for tutoring or going into a more, okay, I'm going to make this curriculum for myself, you can often overcome weaknesses just because the current model where you have 300 students in the class, well, you have to kind of teach to the average to a certain extent. The second thing I would say that I think is also a major factor is that a major function of schools is not so much to teach, but to credentialize, standardize, and really rank people that go into the program. So often what you'll see is that moves that are like, well, this as from a pedagogical perspective is maybe not the best way to teach something, But it's way easier to grade and standardize. So, for instance, one of the things that I talk about in the book is this idea of directness, which if you learn by doing the thing you want to get good at, you'll have less difficulty with transfer. Now, this doesn't seem to be quite as popular. And I was even looking at some of the research on project-based learning, which is closer to this idea of directness as taught in educational institutions. And often where institutions struggle with this is that A complicated project that is initiated by the student is just much harder to grade and rank against other students than a test. And so if part of your goal of an institution is to be able to get students in and say, okay, these are the 50 that passed, these are the 50 that failed, this is the scores they got, so that you can pass that information along down the line. It's harder to do that. And so mm-hmm. I think you do have exceptions. But even in those cases, I know students who've been through those classes, and they have their own problems. So it, my sister, for instance, is doing a master's in architecture, and yeah. they tend to do more of the project based approach. But then you have, you know, all these idiosyncrasies of like your crits who, you know, you have a crit that doesn't like you, and then they grade you badly. And just the fact is, is that project based learning is more nebulous, it's much harder to, to do this kind of standardized grading. Now, Uh from the individual's perspective, this doesn't really matter. I mean, from your perspective, if you want to acquire skills and you don't really care about how you rank against other people, then yeah, you can go and do this approach. So I think the idea of ultra learning and the idea that I really wanted to promote in this book is that we often look at these problems from a systems level. We often look at like, well, why aren't teachers doing X, Y, and Z? And, and my feeling is that teachers are probably trying their best. I mean, there's good teachers and bad teachers, but the good ones are trying their best. And, and as institutions, they care about trying to do what's good for their students. and, and for. But they're under constraints that you as a learner mm. are not under. And so for me, I think that if you approach ultra learning, not only can you accomplish more in your self-education, your self-directed learning, but often you can take that same attitude and go into those formal education structures and really get what you want to get out of it. So often the problem is just that, you know, we, we put this burden on, well, the problem is that the system should fix things. And, and I kind of have the perspective that we as learners should take responsibility and, and sort of figure out what we need to do to acquire skills so that when we come into these interactions with teachers or tutors or things it's an equal exchange of, you know, me as the learner and you as the teacher rather than, okay, show me what you've got. I'll just, you know, <laughs> just sit uh-huh. here passively. And if I'm not learning
0: very well, it's your fault, right? Interesting. So I want to talk about this in one other context, and that is in the context sure. of the workplace. Because I think yeah. what's interesting to me about the workplace, right, is if you look at sort of the founding people in a workplace, mm-hmm. they're trained for, you know, they train for mastery. But I think as a company scales, as it gets bigger, we don't really train for mastery. We train for competence. I mean, Cal Newport and I, who I know you're friends with because he has mm-hmm. a blurb yeah, part, yeah. You know, this book, we talked about this. You know, like modern day work environments are not optimized for deep work and mastery. Uh, they're just not, you know, like mm-hmm. we don't necessarily. I mean, how often do you see absolute geniuses coming out yeah. of like a 10,000 person Fortune 500 company? And so I wonder, you know, what role does the idea of ultra learning play in a corporate environment? Like, are you getting a lot of, are people receptive to this idea? Because it seems like they could really take their employees' skill level up dramatically.
5: Well, and I think this is another point that's worth emphasizing because we were just talking about the system versus individual in the educational context. But here, I would say we can also talk about what are called like agency problems. So agency problems are or an idea from game theory that basically if you get an agent to represent you on your behalf, but they have their own interests, they may mm-hmm. not do exactly what you want. So I, I think it was the book for economics that even used the example of realtors, and how realtors are incentivized to maybe not get the best price on the house, but to have quick turnover. Because for yeah. them, you know, if they can sell 15 houses in a short period of time versus six, they'll make a lot more money than if they get a little bit more for your house. But you who's only selling one house, you really care about that house. And so these are agency problems and they occur everywhere where you have two different actors or institutions that don't always have exactly the same incentives. And nowhere is that clearer than in the workplace. So what you were talking about, I think, is absolutely right. Now, I run a small team uh, with, with my blog and stuff. And I can tell right now that for me, what I often care about is are the people doing the work? So it's exactly what you're talking about. I care about competency. Are you doing what you need to do? Mastery, on the other hand, is something that I think benefits the employee or the individual more than the organization. Because if you move up as an employee and you become a master at something, then well, you're either going to want to get a lot more remuneration from your current employer, or you're going to go leave to somewhere else, right? And so, In that sense, I think, again, it's it kind of falls on the individual to take initiative in some of these contexts because the employer wants to get you up to standard. They want you to be able to fit into the machine that is currently working and produce sort of standardized outputs. And there are differences. There are some industries where there will be positions of greater creativity, but this is still the kind of paradigm, I think, in most organizations, certainly large ones, is that they want standardized kind of components in their system but you as an individual don't want to be a standardized component. You want to be a human being that is reaching your creative potential that is, you know, making things that actually matter and, and really mastering things. And so you kind of have to also at the same time, look, are, are the things my employer wants or the thing my boss wants the same things that I want. And sometimes there can be discrepancy. And so I definitely feel like just, do whatever they ask you to do on the job is not necessarily the recipe to uh you know career success because in some ways it i think for ambitious people it under-optimizes for your ambition and i think at the same time it also under-optimizes for learning because your employer would much rather have you do the same tasks that they know you can do well again and again and again than mm-hmm. to have you really learn and master things that you're not good at right now and may take you a while before you get good at them
0: yeah well, let's do this. Let's uh, shift gears and start talking mm-hmm. about the mm-hmm. ideas in the book. Sure. Uh, I think that one. I want to have you talk about what actually led you down this path. I know the story because I read the book. Um, <laughs> yeah. What is it that that led to this? Because I think that story in and of itself mm-hmm. to me was like, holy shit, really? Because I have friends who've been to MIT. Oh, so. okay, okay. So this one, yeah, yeah. yeah.
5: So uh, right. So this this kind of story has sort of two little initiation points. So I'll I'll kind of tell both because I think. It's kind of good to have the before and after when we're talking about this. So my first real introduction to this idea of ultra learning and now ultra learning is a term that I'm kind of coining or using to describe people who take on aggressive, self directed learning projects. So the contrast being with people who learn something really well, but very much within an institutional system. So, you know, like people who go to med school, every doctor has studied and done something that's quite aggressive for learning, but it's been following this sort of recipe that has been laid out. Whereas the ultra learners are people who learn something aggressively, but often do very idiosyncratic and unique projects. And I thought this would be something interesting to, to look at. And my first real introduction to this was with Benny Lewis. So I was, mm-hmm. uh, I was in business school and I was doing an exchange in France, studying abroad for a year, and I was really interested in learning French. I thought it would be really cool to come back from that year speaking fluent French. And, you know, I just thought it, that was something that really interested me. And I remember before I went on the trip, I interviewed other people who had been on exchange the year prior because my school had this kind of meet and greet where you could talk to people who had been on exchange before just to know what it would be like and I remember talking to these people, and I remember saying, "Did you learn the language and what was interesting for me is that of the people who didn't already speak the language, so you know there were a few people that like, oh yeah, I took you know I spoke that language at home or I took like three years of you know, Spanish classes. And so they, they they did often get better at the language. But for people who had not studied before, of which I was one of them, that, you know, I didn't know more than sort of Bonjour and Comment ça va in French at the time. Um, none of them had learned to speak it. And that was very interesting for me, because my intuition was that, well, if you go on exchange, you'd learn to speak it. Well, it was after arriving on exchange that I realized why this happens. Because I have you know, I have to take classes in this other country and they're going to transfer back to my home school, So my grades are going to count. It's going to matter for whether I graduate. So naturally I don't speak French. So I choose to do classes in English. But then when I do classes in English, I also meet a bunch of other students who also don't speak French, who only speak English. And when I'm speaking English all the time, even my French friends they're used to speaking to me in English. And it was very soon, probably a couple months after that I realized, oh, this is why they don't learn the language because you surround yourself in this English bubble and you never break out of it. And so I was kind of griping about this to a friend back home and he said, well, have you heard of Benny Lewis? And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know who Benny Lewis is. Who's Benny Lewis? And I checked it out because his website was very new back then, but he had a website Mm. and still does called fluent in three months. And this was Benny's self-set challenge that he wanted to try to become fluent in a language in three months. He'd already spoken like seven or eight languages at this point. And he was just doing this challenge of going to a new country for three months and trying to learn as much of the language as possible. And I got the chance to meet Benny. And what struck me about him wasn't just that he had some specific method. It wasn't just like, oh, he had this trick for learning languages. And that's why it was so good. Rather, it was his whole philosophy towards learning was different that he approached it, okay, I'm going to start practicing immediately, even though I'm not very good yet. And he would dive much closer to immersion, complete immersion than I was doing. And so I I took some of his advice, and I really pushed outside my comfort zone, I did learn the French, uh, okay, over that period of time. But it was sort of the light bulb moment that, you know, okay, I've been thinking about just sort of doing what everyone tells you to do and just trying to do it a little better, a little bit more efficiently. But this was this guy who kind of created these challenges that were just, you know, completely out of the expectation of what I thought was possible. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, my, my first ultra learning project was, was not related to languages. I would go back and do that later, but my first project was after I graduated from school. Uh, I was sort of still inspired by Benny. I was also blogging at the time. And so I really liked this kind of idea of doing a challenge on the blog because it just felt kind of real and in person instead of just talking about your accomplishments after they're done. It just, it felt kind of exciting. And so I was excited from that perspective as as a writer and a blogger, but then also excited because um, at the time I was, you know, I did business school and, and we were sort of talking about how, you know, I was a little bit disillusioned after graduating from business school. I was kind of like, ah, oh, this is sort of was a BS major. I, I, I feel better about it now. I think it did teach me some useful things, but at the time I was kind of like Ugh, about it yeah. and I wanted to go and learn computer science. That was something that I had always been interested in. It was something that I was thinking I was going to study before I went into business, before I thought, well, if I'm going to start a business, I ought to study business in business school and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, I, I wanted to learn computer science. And I was thinking about even going back to school to learn it. I was thinking about, you know, you know, going back and doing another undergrad in computer science. And around this time, I found that MIT actually uploads a lot of their classes online for free. So you can go online to MIT's open courseware and just Watch actual lectures that were taught to actual MIT students, and you can see the actual assignments they did, and it has solution sets and final exams with solutions. And at this time, this kind of like confluence of my experience interacting with Benny and his sort of approach both to learning and blogging, and then also, you know, I was like, has anyone ever tried to do like something equivalent to a degree before? And I'm looking online and I can't find anyone. And I'm like, there's no way that like no one's tried to do this before because there's all these resources. I think I was thinking at the time, I'm like, You're, you could probably get pretty close to a degree from the materials. And, and so this kind of, this idea of, well, first of all, trying to learn a degree without going to school was very interesting to me. But then I was thinking, well, because the materials are a little bit sparse, they're not like... You can't do everything exactly as an MIT student would do because you, you know, some classes, you don't have the lectures. You just have the textbook or some classes, they have the assignments, but the assignments have no solution. They just have final exams. And so I was putting this together and I decided, well, what if you simplified it? What if you just said, you know, instead of all the things that you'd have to do as an MIT student, what if you just tried to pass the final exams? That Mm -hmm. would certainly give a lot more flexibility because then if you're missing some resources, you could, you know, make do with something else as a substitute and yeah. it would also be a pretty fair criteria because most of these classes i mean the exam was either most of the grade or it was it was a comprehensive evaluation of how well you learned the material and so these two ideas kind of combined and i got this idea to do what i called the MIT challenge where it was uh, quite quite audaciously it was just sort of i wanted to try to learn MIT's four year computer science curriculum but instead of going to MIT and trying to do that i wanted to use their free materials And I wanted to try to do it in 12 months. And so this was my first big ultra learning project. And um, it was successful. I feel like I was able to not only uh, pass the final exams, but do the programming projects. And I learned basically the content that was in an MIT degree. I mean, there's deviations, of course, and we can get into some of those details if you'd like. But I think just for me, the idea that this was even possible at all, that it was even Uh possible to do something that was even substantially similar to a degree without paying money or even doing it faster was such a such an insight to me that that kind of really you know took me from watching benny lewis and kind of fantasizing about ultra learning to like oh no this is actually something that i'm interested in doing now and you yeah. know we can talk about some of my other projects that i took on after about right. language learning and portrait drawing and whatnot
3: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to, you know, move it in a sort of selfish direction mm-hmm. and use a project of my mm-hmm. own that I'm interested in. I've sure, been, sure. Yeah, yeah, of to, course. Yeah, when I get to talk to Scott, I'm going to basically figure out how to to map out my own ultra learning oh, project it. as a byproduct awesome. of our interview. but. Did you get any, uh, did anybody from MIT contact you about this? Uh, Someone from MIT
5: OpenCourseWare. So this is a big thing. Like MIT is a huge institution. So I'm imagining there's probably some people who didn't like my project. I remember I did a (laughs) TEDx talk. Well, I remember when I announced the project, I got a lot of hate from MIT students, like actual hate mail from MIT students when I announced it. The interesting thing was, is that I, that didn't happen when I was finished it. It was more, uh-huh. it was more the suggestion that I thought that I could do it, that encouraged right, me, which is not like what I actually did. Yeah, it policy. was a very interesting thing because, you know, I and, and I don't, I, I think now I've kind of changed my mind a little bit about the project because I kind of, I feel like there is a certain sense that it, it's kind of a little bit cocky, the, the sort of idea of the project. I mean, right. I did it. So I, I guess, I guess it was not, but I think for me, the idea was just, you know, could you do this at all? Right. It wasn't really like, oh, I want to show off how smart I was. It was just, for me, it was just so exciting that like, I don't have to go back to university. I could, I could learn something. And, and this is MIT. This is like a very high quality kind of, um, educational program. I mean, I didn't just learn about computer science. I did like a whole economics minor. I did, um, Uh, I did like physics classes, chemistry, biology, like I learned about all tons of stuff. So I feel like I learned way more in that one year than I did in my, my undergrad, my actual undergrad. And so, you know, for me, it was just sort of an exciting project to do, but I can definitely see why if you got into (laughs) MIT, which if you can get into MIT, go to MIT, it's a great school. Um, but I mean, I couldn't go to MIT, right. I'm I'm not even American. So the tuition would have been just horrendous. Uh, and you know, and, and so like, if, you know, most people can't go to MIT. So for me, this wasn't really meant intended as an insult to MIT students. It was just sort of like, hey, maybe we can get a fraction of what you're getting (laughs) Uh, without having to go to the school and without having to be admitted into that elite institution. I mean, that was exciting for me, but I think a lot of MIT students weren't super happy about it when I announced it.
0: Yeah. Well, let's do this. Uh, Let's actually Mm. hear get into this whole meta-learning framework. But um, as I sure. mentioned, I'm going to do this in an incredibly selfish way. I want to map out a meta-learning project with you. And and you know some of it Let's I understand it. how to do from reading the book, but I want to learn how to draw. Um, learn how to I draw, to okay, great. Not how to draw portraits, but because of yep. the fact that we do a lot of artwork on our blog, I want to be able to draw mm-hmm. cartoons that I can add to my blog posts Um, possibly even take a stab at illustrating one of our album covers because we do these custom album covers for every guest. Um, I'm not as interested in that, but mainly I want to be able to add cartoons and stuff to my posts. Um, So let's let's take that, you know, this eight step framework Mm -hmm. that you have with meta learning, focus, Mm -hmm. directness, drill, retrieval, feedback, retention, and intuition um, and map it across this project that I want to do because that way we'll have something tactical to work with.
5: Well, this is great. I love concrete examples, and uh, drawing is actually something that I know a little bit about. I have some experience with art, so every single
0: domain of learning is going to be slightly different. So, if you're oh, listening wait, to this right we now, get into this, sorry, hmm. I just realized I have one other question for you. you mentioned oh, sure, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. So, uh, this is something I meant to ask you. So, we've had uh, Daniel Coyle here, um, who wrote The okay. Talent Code, and one of the oh, things okay. I, I began to wonder was, okay, could you take this and apply it to a physical skill? Because there's no way in hell I'm going to play one-on-one with LeBron James. Like, it's just never going to happen, right? <laughs> right. Uh, So I wonder, and then, you know, one of the things that Dan said when he was here, he said, look, he said, are you going to be a good enough musician to open for Guns N' Roses at their next concert? No, probably never because of the brain development. He said, Mm -hmm. can you get good enough to impress the shit out of your friends and family? He said, yeah, absolutely.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you're absolutely right. When we're talking about talent, when we're talking about Uh, how important is innate intelligence. It's, Mm -hmm. I have to be careful because I think there's two extreme views that I try to avoid. One of them is the view that there's no such thing as talent, that everyone's equally smart. And I think this is somewhat an unhelpful paradigm because we've all been in classes where we see someone who's doing much better than us. And I think the wrong takeaway from that is that we should feel bad and guilty because we're not doing it right. And some people do, if they really imbibe this talent methodology, they're like, What am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? And you may be doing nothing wrong. You know, it may just take you longer. It may be harder for you, and it may be that you're better at some subjects than other subjects. So, again, my goal is not to try to encourage that. In the same sense, there's an alternative view, which is a kind of genetic determinism that, well, we all know that everything is about intelligence, and so we're all fixed and we can't change ourselves at all. And the the idea that I like to kind of this is just sort of to illustrate it, and it sounds kind of obvious and dumb when I say it, but. Imagine we took two students and one of them we put in a Portuguese class and one of them we put in a Russian class. And then after six months, we both gave them a test in Russian. Who do you think would do better? Well, obviously, the person who did did the class in Russian is going to do much better than the person who did the Portuguese class. That's obvious. That's kind of a dumb thing. Like, why even bring that up? But... That means right now that we are already admitting that method matters a lot when we're talking about learning. It's just the question of what, how obvious do we think the right method is. So it's obvious that if you wanted to learn Russian, you should go to a Russian class and not a Portuguese class. But I would argue that we make a weaker version of this same mistake when we learn a lot of skills, that we approach it in the wrong way. And so we're like the person who goes to the Portuguese class instead of the Russian class. And then we beat ourselves up because we're just not smart enough as those students who did the Russian class. And so when we're talking about the educational system, it narrows people through exactly the same system so much that a lot of the differences you see are going to be related to sort of innate intelligence and talent differences just because there's very little flexibility. But when we're talking about self-directed learning, when we're talking about ultra learning, when we're talking about your project to learn to draw I mean, it makes a huge difference because there are so much variety in how you could approach it that, you know, it it might be obvious that this way is better than that way. But a lot of people get trapped into doing it the wrong way and they don't realize that they're kind of the person in the Portuguese class who actually wants to be able to speak Russian. And so I think for my goal with this book is to try to illustrate some of those differences, not to negate the idea that innate talent differences exist, but just to point out that especially when we're talking about self-directed learning, there's a huge range of options and being able to have the mental tools to evaluate those options, to be able to say which ones are good and which ones are bad and why they're good and bad. I mean, this is so essential because as I said, I think a lot of us don't realize that we're going down a path that isn't going to get us there. And when we fail, we blame ourselves, we blame our innate talent or our, you know, lack of intelligence rather than, you know, you just didn't have the right approach for learning math or you didn't have the right approach for learning a language. And that was the problem.
0: Yeah. Well, let's do this. Let's get into, uh, this idea of learning how to draw using this meta learning framework. Sure. Um, So like I said, I've given you some context. Let's walk through how we would do this.
5: Yeah. So the first thing to do is that I would start by, and and drawing is a really good example of this, but the way to start any project like this is to probably spend like an hour or two just Googling online how to draw. And I would say how to draw the thing that you want to draw. So drawing is a kind of multifaceted skill. So we can talk about a little bit, but I did a project to draw portraits and this was you know, not cartoons. This was not like it was, you know, e- e- the ones, the finished ones I did would take me, you know, several hours to do. So these are not sketches either. And so even then, that was quite a narrowing of all the field of possible drawing. It's like, I'm going to learn to draw faces and I'm going to learn to draw, you know, actual portraits that you sit down and you try them for a while and not just like quick sketches that take you 20 seconds. And even then, that was a narrowing down of what methods and resources to use. So if you said, okay, I want to draw cartoons, I want to be able to draw illustrations, you could even start to sort of look at, okay, what are the different mediums I could draw in? So you could decide you want to do it in Photoshop, you could try decide you want to use some other software, digital drawings. I mean, um, I do a lot of little cartoons from my website. And I, I just use pen, pen and pencil crayon and scan it. So I'm not using digital for, for my drawings. Mm. But this is where you could start to figure that out. And so this first principle of ultra learning that I talk about in the book is meta learning. And I, I sort of subtitle it, first draw your map. And I think this is very important because drawing the map is to try to figure out what is involved in getting good at this skill and what are all the different facets of this skill. So if you just start with, I want to learn to draw better, that's probably too broad. It's a lot better to say, I want to learn to draw like this and I want to be able to draw this kind of thing. And that will narrow you down. And so first doing some Googling, I would try to figure out what are some good books. What are some good uh, methods and tools? What are the different ways people approach drawing? You know, what what are different techniques and styles that people have, different materials, different methods? This would be the very starting point. And I would try to kind of map them out and figure out, okay, if I did want to get good at this skill, what would I do? If you're talking about a slightly longer project, I mean, if we're talking about a month, That might be sufficient, but if we're talking about a project, anything that's approaching, let's say, something like my MIT Challenge or Year Without English, which is you know a substantial project that's taking months and months to do, then I would also do the additional step of trying to talk to people that have learned this skill before. So talk to someone who has learned to draw the kinds of drawings you want, and then ask them, okay, what resources do you suggest? Uh, How did you practice it? Do this kind of thing. Sometimes that can be unhelpful because you can talk to someone and they can say, oh, I've been drawing for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, now you're not really getting exactly what you need. But they can still point you towards, you know, techniques that might be useful. They can sort of say, well, I use this approach to drawing or I use this approach to sketching. Okay, so that can help you out. The, The next thing I would try to do is try to design a concrete plan where you're going to work on the skill. So I would figure out what my schedule is. What are my starting resources and actually block it in my calendar? So the second reason a lot of people fail is because, you know, they do go into the Russian class to practice for the Russian test, but they do two classes and then they drop out. Right. And obviously that's not going to work. So sticking to a self-directed learning project is probably at least half of what makes it difficult. And so I think that's a a step that really needs to come in the beginning is you need to design, how are you going to work on your project? So what are going to be the hours you set? Um, is it going to be something that you're doing? Okay. I'm going to do 10 minutes a day for six months, or am I going to do an intensive, you know, I have two weeks off. I'm going to spend two weeks working on it nonstop. Am I going to be doing it, you know, four hours a day on Sunday? It really is up to you. I don't think that the schedule is so important. Um, other than just the fact that you need to put in time. Mm-hmm. And so whether you work better for 10 minutes a day for a really long period of time, or you work full time for a short period of time, that's sort of just based on what works best for your schedule. So first, sort of figure out the schedule. You've got some resources, maybe you've got a few books on illustrations, cartoon drawing, maybe you've already decided you want to go digital or you want to go, you know, pencil, paper, traditional. If you go digital, then you can maybe get a book on Photoshop, you get a book on like, Okay, maybe I would need to get like a tablet because I want to be able to draw it with a tablet. I don't want to have to use the mouse and click and stuff. So these are all sort of little decisions you can do in your preparation. The next point I would say is to just try to figure out okay, where am I going to be using these drawings? So you already mentioned two good examples, and this is good for thinking that you wanted to do some um, illustrations, I think either you were saying for your blog posts or for your articles. Mm -hmm. And then um, for this album cover art. And this is good even if you do exercises in the book and things that are not quite for that. Yeah. You're already thinking about where you want to transfer it. So one of the really important principles in the book, principle three, is directness. And this basically says that our ability to transfer skills to unfamiliar areas tends to be weaker than we give credit for. So this is somewhat of a pessimistic result. I mean, it's kind of undermines a lot of the ideas of education itself that, you know, you can learn this really general principle and just immediately apply it everywhere that it matters in your life. And it turns out that people can't do that that well. And this is particularly true, I think, for a, a motor skill, a skill like drawing, which tends to be more in the hands than in the mind. And if you're good at drawing, there are going to be skills that transfer from, let's say, doing quick sketches to doing, you know, oil paintings, but probably somewhat less than you would like. That there's going to be some abstract principles that will transfer, but there's going to be a lot of details that are different. And so in this case with drawing, it's very important to say, okay, I want to be able to draw so that I can make these little illustrations, right, for my blog. I would start doing some of those illustrations from your blog right off the bat. You know, I wouldn't wait, you know, a month or two months to start doing those illustrations. Do them right off the bat because that's going to give you a really good benchmark for are the materials I'm using actually helping me reach that goal? Because if they're teaching you how to do something that well, yeah, but this isn't really what I want to be doing with my drawing, then you're going to have some challenges. So that would be sort of the kernel, a uh, core part of the the project the approach to drawing I would take. Mm-hmm. There's some other steps that we can talk about in the framework um, yeah. after we have some ideas. To go from there I'll, I'll, I'll sort of pass it off to you to sort of give me your thoughts but that would be my starting. yeah
0: point i mean that, sure. that's kind of what I, I thought of as a starting point as well was to just sort of do a deep dive into this and and here's a, a funny yeah. thing and I, I wrote about this in my second book i said you know like i i mm-hmm. attempted uh i i don't think it was as structured or as detailed when i, I did this but i i attempted a 30-day project where I, I taught i wanted to teach myself how to draw and i, I literally just every mm-hmm. day post one on instagram and after yeah. 30 days, you know, it, it was funny because I literally started with a, a picture of an apple and finished with a picture of Steve Jobs. Just a bizarre coincidence. Yeah. The apple happened to be oh, the, great. the one thing in the thing. And my dad looked at it. He's like, yeah, this barely looks like Steve Jobs. But here is what I think is really <laughs> fascinating is that the entire visual aesthetic of Unmistakable Creative was almost entirely determined by that project. Because
1: mm-hmm. I think
0: that, you know, when we redesigned and rebranded, um, I just, I looked at the website and I thought, okay, you know what this does. I, I, I remember looking at very distinctly when we got the first version of the design, I was like, this looks terrible. Uh, and then it just kind of hit me. I said, oh my God, I was like, we should custom illustrate all the icons and we should have our friend Morris Dorian do it. And I mean, it Mm. fundamentally changed the entire look and feel of the site even though I couldn't draw her shit at the end of it. So that's the <laughs> thing that I, I you know. Really well, it takes time, yeah. you know, and I think that's that's one thing I would say as well is
5: that I, I've done these projects and sometimes the projects give the idea, well, if you're not doing it in a month and you're doing it wrong, Rather, I want to use extreme projects to illustrate principles. Yeah. And so if something works really, really well in three months, well, maybe you can't do it exactly in three months, but you can figure out why it worked well and try to emulate some of that. Yeah. So the, these starting points for your drawing project, this would be the foundation. And then the other principles, I think, come into play while you're doing it. Right. You start to notice problems. You start to observe what you're doing. So, so one of the examples would be drill mm-hmm. because drawing is not one idea. It's not one technique. It's yeah. not just some intuition that you have it is many, 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 many different skills. So there is perspective. There is being able to, you know, I, I did this portrait drawing project and I can tell you the most important method for that project to be able to draw faces, I would say fairly realistically. I mean, this is a podcast, so it's a little bit hard to talk about something that's inherently visual, yeah. but if anyone wants to check out my website, uh, they can go to the portrait drawing uh, thing in my uh, challenges section of my website and uh, you can see the before and after for there. So you can get an idea of how, how good I got at, mm-hmm. at drawing portraits. But the idea that was really powerful for getting forward, which I didn't know about at all before I started the project, turns out to be a very specific method for drawing things realistically from sight. Now, it's a little bit time consuming, so it doesn't work for sketching. So this is another example of directness. Like this only works because I want to produce, you know, let's say, either a drawing or maybe a painting that I'm going to work on for a while. It doesn't work over five minutes because it does take a little bit of time. Yeah. But essentially, it's a method of triangulating. Uh-huh. And it's basically you you kind of map out some points and then you fill it in and get more and more detail. And it becomes a method for self-diagnosing what's wrong with my drawing. Like if you draw a face and you're like, it doesn't look like the person. Why doesn't it look like the person? You use this method, right? Uh-huh. And so you can use it in a kind of rough way, or you can use it in the way that I would first learn how to do it, which is a super detailed way, which gets like almost photorealistic um, mapping of the thing, but it takes, it takes more time. Yeah. And so this sort of method was something that like, again, it's a very specific method it's not that everyone drawing uses this method and it's not the only method and approach that you can get to drawing but it does help a lot Mm -hmm. and it's a it's also like we're talking about this drawing this map this is a what i could call as an optical method so there's two kind of styles i guess you could say you could approach drawing one is a an optical approach where you really try to figure out what it is that you're looking at so what are the relationships between you know is this above this is what's the angle between this and this so that you're mapping out points and with color and texture, what's the hue of this? How does it relate to this other color that I'm witnessing? If you're painting or if you're drawing, you know, you know, is this darker, lighter and and what is that? So there's an optical approach to things. Um, a really good introduction to the optical approach to drawing would be drawing on the right side of the brain. It's mm-hmm. a really famous book, but it teaches essentially this optical approach, but there's this also this whole other form of drawing. Whole other set of tools, which we could call a conceptual approach to to drawing, which is what should this look like? And this is something that's quite dangerous if you're new to drawing, but is actually really helpful because you can know, for instance, let's say you're drawing an egg and the white part in the light of the egg just looks all the same color. You can't really see it changing but you know the egg is round, so you know it has to it has to change shade at some point. And so you could actually be like, well, the light's coming from here, so you know it has to be darker on this side than that side. And so this can actually improve your drawing a lot because you know how it is actually put together. And if we're talking about portrait drawing, for instance, you can know what are all the muscles in the face and the bones in the face, and this conceptual knowledge will help you render features that like, well, you know that this has to be here, even though it's kind of subtle and you can't quite see it. And so... This is examples of like, if you were laying out your understanding of drawing and artwork and you spent a couple hours Googling, you might come across these distinctions. You might come across different methods. There's probably about 15 different methods that you can get to, to draw realistic drawings. And so a lot of times people will encounter one method. They aren't very good at it. And then they'll throw up their hands and they say, well, I'm not good at drawing. I'm not a good artist. And I just want to say, no, no, no. Like people who are good at drawing know like about 15, 20 of these different ideas Uh And they have practiced them seamlessly so that they go into their place. And so if you don't know those ideas, if you don't know those techniques, those sort of fundamental assumptions, and you haven't practiced them, I mean, of course, you're not going to be able to draw very well. So this would sort of be when once you start getting into it, you'd start drilling down, okay, I want to master this particular method. And then that takes the whole concept of drawing and just makes it something atomic that you can actually get your hands around.
0: Yeah. I mean there there's what I think what struck me so much about the way you structured the book was every one of these yeah. concepts had so much detail that there's probably no way we could cover them in <laughs> no, uh, no. in an, an hour podcast. <laughs> it's been but, my life for 10 years, yeah. Yeah, no, I I, I mean it was so detailed and mm-hmm. so backed by so much research which is, I think one of the reasons I really liked it but one of the things I want to talk about Thank is you. feedback because I think that you yeah, uh, you mm-hmm. spent a lot of time talking about feedback and and you know so I, interesting. I really appreciated it, Two things you said about feedback. You said no feedback and the result is often stagnation, long periods of time when you continue to use the skill but don't get any better at it. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the lack of feedback can even result in declining abilities. And then there's another thing you said, receiving feedback isn't always easy. It's a process. If you process it as a message about your ego rather than your skills, it's easy to let a punch become a knockout. And mm-hmm. I think those two things struck me because I work with a handful of clients on their books and I've had a writing coach yeah. me on my books. And I remember one of the yeah. things that she had told me was, I'm not going to sugarcoat any of my feedback. And mm-hmm. that was actually why I, I chose her out of the three that I had an option for. Uh, yeah. Because I said, uh, I want somebody who's going to be tough on me. And when she said she was going to be tough, she wasn't kidding. I remember I would get. <laughs> these you know, red line, you know, documents back. And I'm like, this is like a creative root canal. Uh, and yeah. it took me a month before I stopped taking her feedback personally. Um, and, it, you know, and she, she showed me, you know, the, the feedback that she gave to a really, really famous author that everybody who's listening to this knows. And I said, okay, well, if he got this editorial memo, I don't feel yeah. bad anymore. Uh, but you yeah. actually may, and you know, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because I've had this same issue with mm-hmm. a client who at first thought I didn't like her writing. And I said, look, this has nothing to do with me liking or not liking your writing. Yeah. This is about me giving you feedback on your writing. And right now it's mm-hmm. not good. Uh, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it because I'm not capable yeah. of that. Uh, like mm-hmm. if you want somebody who is going to be kind, you know, like, you know, handle you with kid gloves, it's not me. I, I suck at that. That's yeah. why I'm not a life coach. <laughs> uh, Right. But uh, you distinguish between sort of three types of feedback, outcome feedback, informational feedback, mm. and correctional feedback. And you also talk about noise cancellation and hitting the sweet spot. So can you kind of give us a, a overview of this whole feedback yeah. concept? Oh, wow. The feedback is like, I
5: could have written a whole book about feedback because <laughs> yeah. the research is so inter- This is the thing. People don't want to buy a book on feedback, but like I would totally write a book about feedback. So I, instead I had to limit myself to a chapter. Yeah. So when you're reading any of the chapters of the book, know that like, I had to cut out a lot of stuff like I I really wanted to make it as dense as possible and not go into super weird detours. But I've read whole books on feedback. They're very it's very interesting. Yeah. And for me, I think uh, there's uh, Yeah, where to start with feedback. So I would say the first thing is, is that the emotional sort of component of feedback is huge. It often determines how successful we are with feedback. And there's kind of a paradox here. Because On the one hand, like we just said, feedback is often very valuable. But on the other hand, uh, in one of the meta-analyses that I did for this study by Abraham Kluge and Angelo Denisi, they found that in 37% of the studies that they looked at, feedback actually had a negative effect on learning. So why is that? Why does feedback have a negative effect on learning? And the reason why is because if feedback as an information signal is given in an inappropriate way or it is demotivating, then it can have a negative impact because even if it's, you know, if we're thinking about we're all Spock, right, we're all, you know, Vulcan robots that can just process things without any emotions, then yeah, feedback would probably be good most of the time. It's probably still some situations where you'd, you, you wouldn't want it, but uh, most of the time it would probably be good, but we're not, right? And so like you said, you give someone feedback and it's critical and they just shut down. They stop working on it. And so the paradox of feedback is that this can happen, right? So So does that mean you shouldn't get feedback? Well, actually the opposite. My feeling is that the ultra learning approach where you dive into feedback is actually the way to reduce the sting of it. And the reason why is that this is not happening at a conscious level. I want to be clear about this. Like when I get negative feedback, I also feel like crap. So this is not. I'm not. I'm not like. I'm not saying that I'm like some superhuman person that like. Oh yes, this criticism of me. I won't take it personally. No, of course I take it personally. You know, like someone writes a shitty review of my book, and you're kind of like, oh man, it makes me feel bad for like you know a couple hours at least, depending on who who wrote the criticism. And so this is not something we have any control over. So if you do feel this way about feedback, I'm not blaming you because you should be more Spock like. We're not. We're not Spock like. Right. We we have these emotions, but rather what it is is that. When you get feedback, it's a little bit like a fear response. So I think the um, research on how people handle phobias is very interesting here that exposure therapy, basically exposing yourself to this thing you're afraid of, reduces the fear of it. And so um, in, in some ways, the people who are more successful with their ultra learning projects, they did the opposite. They dove into feedback, not because it doesn't bother them at all, but because once you've gotten feedback for the hundredth time, you just don't care. Yeah. And so it's a little bit, you know, there's this, uh, there's this story that I thought was really interesting, um, which I, I have no idea where I remember reading this, but it was talking about, you know, those construction workers used to work in Manhattan, like back in like the twenties when they're building like the empire state building and stuff. And they're standing on top of those girders eating out of their lunch pails, you know, hundreds of feet over the ground. Right. Have you seen any of these photos? Yeah, I think so yeah, they're, they're kind of iconic kind of photos in black and white. And someone was talking about like, you see these photos and you just, I don't know, I have like a mild fear of heights. So my stomach just like drops whenever I see these photos. Like, how can you just be casually eating your lunch when, you know, you're hundreds of feet on the ground, and your legs are just dangling there. And uh, someone was talking about how people who do this, that they also have that fear of heights when they start but that it completely goes away. So that after they've done it for, you know, a couple of weeks, they don't feel any fear at all anymore. But what's something that's very interesting is once they go back to working construction on the ground, and then they have to go back again, they have to do the whole process all over again. It's as if, you know, at an instinctual level, they fear heights and that that can be suppressed when you go through with it. But it, it will, it's, it is a natural thing. It's not just sort of based on kind of who you are. And what I found very interesting about that is that I think feedback's the same way, that getting negative feedback, no one ever likes that. And I don't think you can ever make yourself into a position where you're totally inured to feedback. But if you are in the trenches getting feedback constantly, it does stop to hurt you. So some examples from my book that I thought were really illustrative of this kind of general concept of diving into feedback in order so that paradoxically the feedback doesn't feel so bad is Tristan de Montebello, who did this intensive public speaking project. And I mean, if you stand and you give six speeches a, a week, you will quickly lose your sort of sensitivity to people who are critical of you or people who, you know, don't like what you're speaking is. You just lose that fear quite quickly. Um, the other example is, of course, Benny Lewis with the uh, Fluent in Three Months and the Speaking Languages Quickly. He was, you know, going into these situations and speaking um, very early on. And by doing that, and especially by approaching something closer to full immersion, which is, was sort of the idea of the project that I took on, um, yes, it is nerve-wracking to talk to a stranger in a language you don't speak very well. And, and that never goes away. So for me, for instance, even these languages that I was in full immersion for and I speak quite well right now, I still feel nervous if I have to just initiate with a stranger in this language when I'm used to speaking English. But if you have been speaking only that language for for even a couple of weeks, it just doesn't bother you at all. It doesn't feel weird. It just, maybe you're not very articulate, but you're totally used to that. And so I find this idea about feedback very interesting because often not seeking feedback is a major handicap particularly with professional skills. I mean, writing is the classic example. I hate getting feedback on my writing, but I know that it's the thing that makes my writing better. Uh And because we avoid feedback, you avoid seeking environments that might produce the feedback, which are kind of paradoxically the very environments you need to be in if you want to improve your writing. Uh I mean, for me to get better as a writer now, I have to be having someone giving me uh, critical feedback, but you know, it, it doesn't often happen. Yeah. And so this is very important, but we often avoid these environments. But sort of paradoxically, the way to get over that fear, the way to not have it sting so much is to do the opposite, is to get tons of it. You yeah.
0: know? Yeah. Wow. Wow, man, this has been awesome. I mean, I knew I knew it would be. And I think, like I said, it, it, it's so <laughs> layered and complex in terms of um, how much you packed into this that, like I said, I, I just I knew I was like, how the hell are we going to cover this in an hour? We just can't because um, you have so many different ways of doing it. Well, my hope, yeah, my hope for the book is like, I don't, and again, we're talking about transfer
5: research. I don't expect you to read the book and to like fully implement every single little idea. I have. This has again been my life's work of putting this <laughs> together. But I'm hoping that you can get kind of a bird's eye view and get started because when you get started on your own projects, not only will you discover some of these lessons for yourself, but you'll, you'll, okay, I've gotten some of the basics and then maybe you'll go back to the book and be kind of like, Oh, what was he saying about this, this thing that kind of went over my head in, in the first bit, but is kind of a nuanced point that now I'm struggling with. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I have
0: one last question for you, which is mm. how we finish all of our interviews here. at the of course, unmistakable of course. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
5: you know in the in the book i have a whole chapter on experimentation and this was sort of my this was the last principle of uh, ultra learning and it was really for me kind of looking at going beyond how do you get to sort of adequacy or how do you start learning a new skill but how do people really achieve mastery and i think that to be unmistakable to be something that is totally unique totally original totally you know not like anything else that anyone has ever done before that this is something that first builds on a process of getting good at things So you have to first, you know, in order to produce truly unmistakable writing, truly creative works, you have to first have this foundation of skill. I I think very few people produce creative works uh, instantly. But at the same time, it's recognizing that once you get to a certain point, you can't just do the same thing that you've always done beforehand, that people who really create something unmistakable are people who, once they've mastered some of the basics, They start exploring and experimenting in directions other people haven't gone before. And one sort of metaphor that I like to think of is that the space of possible things that people have made before is wildly underexplored. So most of the things that could exist don't exist and have never existed and never will exist just because of how many possible things there are. So I remember reading this somewhere that said that once you take a sentence of, forget how many words it was, Once you get to a sentence of a particular length, it's very likely that if you write that sentence, it has never been uttered in all human history. And this is just because the permutative complexity of the English language is such that once you get a a sentence of a certain length or definitely a paragraph, I don't know how long the sentence has to be, that it is exceedingly unlikely that anyone's ever had that thought before in that exact way. And so I think with creativity and with mastery and really going and creating unmistakable works it's about exploring that frontier. And so I'm hoping that this book and these ideas will allow someone to not only master the basics, but really take it to new directions and create things that are truly original.
0: Hmm. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights uh, with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to? So,
5: uh, I would highly recommend checking out my website. That's Scott S C O T T H Y O U N G S C O T T H Y O U N G.com. I have, um, we were talking about, you know, how you've been blogging or podcasting for so long while well, I've been writing articles for a long time. So there's over 1300 articles, I believe over the last 13 years uh, on that website. So there's plenty of uh, free content, but of course I also highly recommend checking out the book. The book is ultra learning. It's available on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, wherever you get your books. And also, if you go to my website, there's links to the book as well, if if for some reason you have difficulty finding it. But um, yeah, and if anyone listening to this decides to take on an ultra learning project, um, I would really like to hear about them. So don't hesitate to send me an email if you end up learning something cool as a result.
0: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive,
4: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch.